You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. During Advent this year, we're looking at some of these incredible yet lesser known prophecies about Jesus from the Psalms. Uh, This morning, as we look at Psalm 85, we're going to see that the coming King restores our peace. The coming King restores our peace. As many church leaders have pointed out over the years, the Bible's vision of peace is not merely the absence of conflict, but the presence of shalom. Shalom is this Hebrew word, which means wholeness or flourishing. It's a word to really describe all of creation being in right relationship with itself, with the other parts of creation, but even more importantly, a right relationship with its creator. See, for us in the, in the geopolitical or interpersonal sense, we tend to think about peace as the opposite of war. So if we're not at war, uh, if we don't have, if this person's not an enemy of mine, then we're at, we're at peace. Internally, uh, in the emotional or mental or spiritual sense, we tend to think about peace as a state of calm or tranquility, the opposite of distress, the opposite of chaos. And so if we're finding some sense of that serenity, we're at peace. What I hope you'll see this morning is that God's design for peace, for shalom, is so much bigger than that. It's so much more pervasive than that. Peace in God's design is the way things were meant to be. It's what's been lost through the fracture, through the corruption of humanity's sin. But it's what has been and is being and will be restored through the coming King, Jesus Christ. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is the 85th Psalm. To the choir master, a Psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, your vision of peace, your vision of wholeness comes to us both in sweeping revelations and in tiny signs of hope. And so we ask by your spirit this morning that you would kindle our hearts, that we would look for and anticipate and live in light of your peace. Keep us even now from growing weary of waiting so that we do not miss the glory of your appearing. And even so, especially as we anticipate during this Advent season, we pray, come soon, come quickly, Lord Jesus. 
Amen. Amen. Four things uh, for us to see from Psalm 85 this morning. Patterns of peace, pleading for peace, promised peace, and then the path to peace. Patterns of peace, pleading for peace, promised peace, and the path to peace. First, verses one through three, let's talk about the patterns of peace. We're not sure when exactly this psalm was written, but a lot of evidence seems to indicate it was sometime after the Israelites returned from their years of exile in Babylon. In these opening verses, the psalmist, who's one of the sons of Korah, just like the the Psalms that we looked at last week, Psalm 42 and 43, also written by the sons of Korah. This psalmist is remembering how God restored the fortunes of Jacob, how God forgave their sin, how God withdrew his wrath. And throughout this psalm, as you heard, there are multiple references to the land. And so this seems to be written in a period of time after God's promised land had been lost first and then regained. And the most likely context for that in the history of God's people is after they return from their 70 or so years of exile in Babylon. As the Psalm then unfolds, we see that restoration is needed once again. God is angry with Israel again. The people need revival. They need peace again. And so whatever the specifics, that's the purpose of this Psalm. It's to cry out to God and to ask him to do again what he has done already in the past and to bring restoration, to bring peace to his people. Ever since the fall, when sin entered the world, the human experience involves patterns of peace. Peace gained, peace lost, peace restored. This is all over Israel's history all over Israel's history. But one of the clearest places to see it is in the book of Judges. That's the book of Judges just over and over again. It's that cycle. It's this pattern of peace. The cycle goes like this. Rebellion, God's people turn away from him. Retribution, an enemy, another people group rises up and they serve as God's instrument of punishment for their rebellion. Then there's repentance. The people of God, sometimes after like 40 or 80 years, takes them a long time, but they're moved to cry out to God for mercy. And then there's rescue. God raises up a judge, some of them fairly well-known and famous like Samson or like Gideon, raises up a judge to deliver his people. And that then leads to a period of rest, uh, a relative stability and peace ensues from from that time on. So in one sense, the the context of Psalm 85, it matters, right? It really matters. We want to understand in scripture what was being written and to whom it was being written and why in its moment. That matters. Because this is a specific author with a specific experience of restored peace in view. But there is also a timelessness to this psalm. In almost any moment where peace has been lost, where rebellion and retribution have brought the people of God to that low point in the pattern, the low point in the cycle, this psalm would fit. That's helpful. It's helpful because our lives are characterized by this pattern too. It's not just Israel. It's not just the people of God. Our lives are characterized by this pattern. Our lives are not static when it comes to the experience of peace. At times we have a really deep sense of it. Other times it feels almost completely absent. This Psalm and Psalms like it normalizes that, validates that for us. And so really one of the things we should learn from Psalm 85 is to identify and to call out this pattern in our lives. 
We should expect that we're gonna experience this pattern in our lives. We should identify it and call it out as it's happening. Two practical ways to do that. Remembrance and repentance. Remembrance and repentance. So remembrance, the, the psalmist, as you heard, opens with remembrance. He's saying, God, you, you did this. You brought peace. You restored our fortunes. You gave us the land back. You forgave us. As he prepares to ask again, she does in the next section, he's saying first, this isn't the first time we've been here, God. And this isn't the first time you've, you've answered us when we've cried out to you. You've done this before. And if you're a Christian, if you're someone who's put your faith in Jesus, how much more is that true of you? God has been favorable to you. God has, through the work of Jesus, forgiven your iniquity. He's covered over your sin. You, you and I were dead in our sin. That's the description the Bible gives. You and I made ourselves enemies of God because of our sin. But God, in his own initiative, did the work and made peace with us. All of that for us is in our rearview mirror. So remember that. Remember that. And on top of that, remember then how God has since brought times of restored peace to your life. How you've glimpsed little moments of shalom in your life. Not the fullness of it, but some of it. Cultivating that kind of remembrance will help you navigate life wherever you find yourself in that cycle, wherever you find yourself in that pattern of peace. The other practical implication here is repentance. Repentance. The psalmist asks God to again, put away his indignation, put away his anger toward them. I want to be really clear about, about this this morning. When we experience a loss of peace or the absence of peace in our lives, that's not always because of our own personal sin. Sometimes that's because other people have sinned against us. Sometimes that's because sin, capital S sin, has so corrupted the world so pervasively that we're just bombarded by the effects of that. But when we lack peace, that's a moment for us to take stock and to at least raise the question, is there anything in my life that I need to repent of? Is there any kind of rebellion against God that I'm committing right now? Is there any kind of deep unbelief in my life right now that's actually robbing me of the fuller experience of God's peace? Asking and answering that, that question does not make you a uniquely bad person. Asking that question, answering that question does not make you a uniquely bad Christian, right? Repentance is part of the pattern. It's part of the pattern of peace. It was for Israel. It is for us. The Christian life is not repent once when you come to faith in Jesus and then live a sin-free life that requires no repentance from there on out. I mean, that would be great. It's just not true. It's not reality. No, in the words of Martin Luther, which he famously nailed to a door, all of a Christian's life is a life of repentance. The whole thing, beginning to end. Our sin is not always the cause of our lost peace, but it sometimes is. It often is a contributing factor. I know that's true for my life. A lack of peace in my life is often the result of my sin of impatience. A lack of peace in my life is often the result of the sin of anger. Uh, a lack of peace in my life is often the result of trying to control things that I actually have no business trying to control. So in both remembrance and repentance, I would invite you to take stock this morning. Identify that there is this pattern to peace that has played out, is playing out in your life. Remember 
how God has brought peace before and rejoice in that and be grateful for that. But also then raise that question. Is there anything I need to repent of right now? Is there anything about my lack or my loss of peace that actually is tied to my own sin? Maybe not, but, but maybe. And if so, welcome to the club. Welcome to the club because all of a Christian's life is a life of repentance. Acknowledge your sin, turn from it, turn back to God. That's the pattern of peace. Second, let's talk about pleading for peace. In verses four through seven, the psalmist begins to cry out to God. And I hope you heard it when we read through it, but these are not small prayers. These are not small prayers. Restore us again. Do what you've done before. Give us back what has been lost. Revive us again. Right? We're on life support. Bring us back to life, God. Show us your steadfast love and grant us your salvation. Meaning, as he indicates there, turn away from your anger. Let us again, God, feel your love and not feel your anger. Let us again experience your salvation and not your indignation. The content of our prayers says a lot about our understanding of God's character. It says a lot about our understanding of God's character. In other words, if we, pr- we pray, we will pray according to what we actually believe about God. If we believe that God is distant, if we believe that God is largely unconcerned with the affairs of our lives, that's going to affect our prayers. That's going to affect what we pray for. If on the other hand, like the psalmist, we believe that God is the God of restoration, the God of revival, that he's the God of steadfast love, that he's the God of salvation, this is what our prayers start to sound like. So in times when we lack peace, or in times when we recognize the the absence of peace in our world, in addition to remembering and repenting, learn to plead for peace. Learn to plead for peace. Cry out to God in prayer and begin to trust more and more who he has truly revealed himself to be. Charles Spurgeon once put it this way. He said, we do not come in prayer to God's poorhouse where he dispenses his favors to the poor nor do we come to the back door of the house of mercy to receive the leftover scraps, though that would be more than we deserve. But when we pray, Spurgeon says, we are standing in the palace on the glittering floor of the great King's own reception room. Should we come there with stunted requests and narrow and contracted faith? No, it does not become a King to be giving away pennies and nickels. He distributes pieces of gold does not become a king to be giving away pennies and nickels. He distributes pieces of gold. This summer in our, in our series on prayer, one of the tools that we recommended for, for your prayer tool belt, so to speak, is what we call Jesus-only prayers. Jesus-only prayers. In other words, big, bold prayers for things that only Jesus can accomplish. Most of us, and this is me, aim too small in prayer. We aim too small. We, we limit our prayers to physical needs, to personal needs, maybe even to things that we think are already likely to happen. Hedge our bets that way. And it's not that we shouldn't pray for for smaller daily things. We should. Just don't make those the only things you pray for. Pray big prayers of bold faith. Pray for things that if answered, it would be immediately obvious, not only to you, but to everyone else that that is only accomplished by the power and grace of God. Do you ever pray for restoration? Do you ever pray for revival? Do you ever pray for peace, for a deeper experience of God's shalom? 
And yes, for your life, absolutely, but not just for your life or maybe the, the couple people that you're closest to in the world. Do you ever pray this for the people of God as a whole? Do you ever pray this for the world to experience more of God's peace? Tyler Staten put it this way, said, if God gave you everything you prayed for in the last week, what would happen? If God gave you everything you prayed for in the last week, what would happen? Many days, my answer to that question is pretty pathetic. Way too small. Way too small to honor the glory and the power and the majesty of the God of heaven and earth. But the psalmist, think about this. The psalmist, if God gives him everything he's praying for here, that's restoration and revival and salvation on par with the return of Israel from Babylonian exile. Whether or not that's the actual context here, we don't know, but on par with something that amazing that God moved in history to do. That sounds not just more in line with the the character of God. That sounds like the kinds of requests befitting the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So plead for peace. Uh, Borrow the psalmist's words here, if that's helpful. If you don't have your own words to plead for peace, you're not sure how to do that. Borrow the psalmist's words, pray big Jesus-only prayers for peace. Third, let's talk about promised peace, promised peace. Where verses four through seven are this plea, this prayer. In verses eight and nine, the psalmist starts to make some really confident assertions. He says, let me hear what God, the Lord will speak because God will speak peace to his people. So God's salvation is near to those who fear him. Surely, surely his salvation is near. And in this hope, anticipation that God's glory will again dwell in their land. In these verses, there's also a shift from the plural to the singular. The psalmist thus far has been acting as a representative for the people of God. And so he's prayed things like restore us, revive us, grant us salvation. But now he's saying, verse eight, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. Let me personally lay hold of this. I'm not just a representative of the people. I'm not just pleading on their behalf. I want it. I need it too. What gives the psalmist this kind of deep personal confidence? It could only be the promises of God. Could only be the promises of God. It could only be the fact that that peace is not a fanciful human wish, but the very will of God. We're in the Christmas music season. Love it or hate it, right? We're in it. We're there right now. Uh, And there's a lot of actually popular holiday songs that talk about peace. If you listen closely to the lyrics of, of Christmas songs, holiday songs, there's a lot about peace in there. But most of them are utterly devoid of the substance to actually bring that peace about. So for example, the song, Someday at Christmas, And you just knew I was going to ruin at least one song for you this Advent season. It's like a little personal tradition of mine, right? Mary, did you know that song should be five seconds long? Yes, she knew. Next track, right? We're moving on, moving on. But someday at Christmas, okay, I love Stevie Wonder. I love Stevie Wonder and I really like the melody. I really like the lyrics even of this song. But every time I hear it, and I heard it again a couple times this week, every time I hear it, it just feels like empty human wishes. Someday at Christmas, there'll be no tears when all men are equal and no man has fears. Or someday at Christmas, we'll see a land with no hungry children, no empty hand. Or maybe the most audacious one, 
Someday at Christmas, man will not fail. Hate will be gone and love will prevail. I want all of those things, right? And whether you're someone that's a Christian this morning or not, I hope you want all of those things too. That sounds amazing. That kind of peace, that kind of shalom sounds incredible. But if I'm actually gonna believe that that someday is actually coming, if I'm gonna bleed, if I'm gonna sweat, if I'm gonna cry working to see glimpses of that peace come into this world, I need someone other than Stevie Wonder to promise me that. Okay, I need someone other than Stevie Wonder or Michael Buble or Mariah Carey. It's not, let me hear what pentatonics will speak. For surely they will beatbox peace to their people. Okay, for the psalmist, it's not even, let me hear what the other sons of Korah will speak or let me hear what the people will speak or let me hear what the current king of Israel or Judah will speak. It's, let me hear what God the Lord will speak for he will speak peace to his people. You see, all the way back when Shalom was lost in the garden, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God's gracious rule and and their sin fractured the world, it was in that very moment that God promised to restore it. A redeemer would come from the offspring of Eve and Satan, the serpent, would strike his heel, but he would crush the serpent's head. That redeemer, Jesus Christ, is the one who says on the day he comes again, behold, I am making all things new. God is reconciling the world to himself in Jesus. God is restoring the peace, restoring the shalom, the wholeness, the flourishing of his original design. If we are going to plead for, if we're going to work for God's peace in this world, this is the promise we need. And this is the source we need to hear it from. So here's what I'd encourage you to do with that today. Let this stir up some holy discontentment in your soul. This psalmist pens these words because he recognizes this is not the way it's supposed to be. Shalom, peace, that's how it's supposed to be. That's the way it one day will be. But the psalmist is writing these words saying, it's not today, it's not happening right now. For us, that broken relationship in your life, the constant fighting that's playing out, maybe among friends, maybe in your family, maybe in your workplace, wherever, or even broader than that, the massive rifts that continue to exist between people of different races and ethnicities and socioeconomic standings, the disunity of Jesus's church, right? This is not the way it's supposed to be. Be stirred up with some holy discontentment about that. And then let that holy discontentment fuel your pursuit of peacemaking. Let it fuel your own pursuit of peacemaking. In January, we're going to do a short series on the Beatitudes. And during that series, we'll consider what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the peacemakers. For today, just in short, it means really to pray and to work for the shalom of the world. To be an agent of God's peace in the world. Not because you can usher it in. Not because you have that power by your own strength. Not because Stevie Wonder or the Beatles or whoever promised it was coming someday. But because God has promised that he will do that. C.S. Lewis once wrote that as Christians, we believe a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. So I would invite you to think about this question. What is one way you can be a peacemaker this Advent season? One way you can be a peacemaker this Advent season. What's one conversation you can have? 
and you don't want to have it. I get it. But it's one conversation you could have. What's one act of service, sacrificial service to push back what is dark in the world, to give the world one more glimpse, one more taste of God's peace? What's one way you can live more in light of God's promised peace this Advent season? Fourth and final, let's talk about the path, the path to peace. God's promise of peace is really the foundation of this psalm. But thus far, the psalmist hasn't really dealt with the how question. Okay, that's great. God's promised peace, peace is coming. How? How is God going to bring that about? And here's the dilemma. Real peace, real shalom requires a massive amount of conflict. Requires actually a lot of judgment. It requires actually dealing with the things that have corrupted the world, not just sweeping them under the rug, not just pretending like they're no big deal. And left to ourselves, that's bad news for us. That's bad news for us. God is going to deal with sin. God is going to put down the rebellion against him. But who are the rebels? I am and you are. We are the rebels. Our sin is the reason things are not the way they're supposed to be. Our sin is what has robbed the world and does rob the world of peace. And so as the psalmist writes at the end of this psalm, these last few verses, the only path to peace is if all of the attributes of God can come together and show, show themselves forth in perfect harmony. If all the attributes of God can come together. So verse 10, God's steadfast love, his immense love for his creation and especially for his created image bearers. That has to come together somehow with God's faithfulness. And that word means truth. That word means firmness. It's really like what God revealed to Moses when we studied Exodus this fall in Exodus 34. God is the God of steadfast love. He's the God who forgives iniquity, but who also by no means will clear the guilty. Those things have to come together somehow. Or back to Psalm 85 verse 10, God's righteousness that he always does what is right because he is holy and he can do no other has to come together with peace, with peace. And herein lies the prophecy of Psalm 85. God is always all of these things. He's always all, it's not that like in one moment, God is characterized more by love and in another moment, he's characterized more by anger. It's not that in one moment, he's thinking about righteousness and in the other moment, he's thinking about peace. There is a deep harmony and deep unity in God, though, as I'm sure you're aware, that's really hard for us to understand. It's really hard for us to know how that works. But in his kindness, God gives us these moments where we see the harmony shine through. Like in giving his law, in giving his law to Moses, he's saying, here's love and here's truth together. Here's love and you were slaves. Don't go back and be slaves anymore, but there's still boundaries. There's loving boundaries so that you remain free people that you now are. And those boundaries have fallen in pleasant places. Or in, the, or in the sacrificial system, here is God's holy anger towards sin. There are consequences for sin. Sin has to be dealt with, but it doesn't have to be dealt with by you. There's a way that it doesn't fall on you. That's the, those are the examples that this psalmist would have in his mind as he writes these words. Moments where, where that curtain was pulled back just a little bit and you can start to see how the righteousness of God and the peace of God could kiss each other. But long after this son of Korah was in the ground, there came a day when that curtain wasn't just pulled back, but that curtain was torn in two. 
What does it look like for righteousness and peace to kiss each other? It looks like Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the only way God's righteousness and God's peace can fully embrace. That's the only way God can deal with the sin that corrupts without crushing those who have sinned and corrupted. That's the only way that God can can fully withdraw his wrath and forgive the iniquity of his people and cover all their sin. It's the only way, as the apostle Paul will go on to write centuries later in Romans 3, that God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, friends, Christmas is not first and foremost a a sentimental time to, to spend with family and friends. It's a great side benefit of it. It's a great thing we get to do during this season. But first and foremost, Christmas is the cornerstone of God's plan for peace. The cornerstone of God's path to peace. Because for the restoration of our peace and the peace of this world, for the restoration of shalom, God, the son took on flesh that he might make peace on the cross. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says it this way. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's the incarnation. It's what we celebrate in the Advent season. Why? And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christmas is not just God speaking peace to his people. It is God shouting his peace to his people. It is God singing his peace over his people. It's a reason why the angels, when they came proclaiming the birth of Christ, they said in Luke chapter two, glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So this advent, locate yourself in the pattern of peace. Recognize that pattern in your life. Pursue remembrance, pursue repentance where you need to. Plead for peace. Pray some big Jesus-only prayers for restoration, for revival. Let your holy discontentment fuel your pursuit of peacemaking. God has promised peace. Let's live more in light of that peace. Let's work for it in the ways that we have opportunity to. And in all of that, because the incarnation and the cross are the loudest God has ever spoken peace to his people. This Advent, let us hear what God the Lord will speak. Amen pray for us. Jesus, you are the promised Christ. And we are at this moment, a world at war. We are at this moment, people not experiencing peace because of sin. Our peace depends on your coming and your coming alone. We pray that that you would this morning remind us of the incredible vision of peace that you are, as we celebrate among so many other names, this Advent season, the Prince of Peace. And we ask this morning that as we prepare to come to your table, we see the cost of that peace, that you made peace by the shedding of your blood on the cross, that we would be moved by your spirit, transformed by your spirit to be people who not only experience and rejoice in the peace you've shown us, but work for your peace in this world. Would you give us grace now as we prepare to come? We pray all that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.